Welcome to Week in Horror. All right, you primitive screwheads, listen up. The podcast that deep dives all the films you love. Gotta be fucking kidding. The week they dropped in horror history. We all go a little mad sometimes. With your horror hosts. JL. When a shirtless Sam Elliott with no mustache takes out a, an alligator with a uh, with an oar, that's the kind of movie I'm looking for. Eugene. Ever just casually just like, yeah, so that's probably the best way to go, light someone on fire with gasoline. Okay. Alex. It would not be an original lineup if I didn't have fucking technical <laughs> Johnny O. Now, it's not an Amityville. Or whatever. It's Amityville. And Aaron. They, they got manure to work with and nothing very from it. <laughs> News, trailers, trivia, special guests, and more. You're going to need a bigger potion. Live show every Wednesday, 7 p.m. Central at YouTube.com slash Week in Horror. Welcome to prime time, bitch! And wherever you listen to podcasts. One by one, we will take you. Week in Horror. <laughs> Stay scared. <laughs> welcome, welcome, horror fans. It is Wednesday, 7 p.m. Central Time. That means it's time for another episode of the Week in Horror podcast. The only podcast that pairs with some fava beans and a nice Chianti. And for everyone listening on their favorite podcast host, you too can join us here for our YouTube live show. Come laugh and scream with us and maybe even win some official Week in Horror prizes. This week, we are covering select horror films released October 2nd through October 8th. Thank you all so much for joining me. I'm JL, and it's just me tonight. You're stuck with me for the remainder of the show. Um, the other guys had some things come up. Uh, I know that um, I know that Eugene and Johnny are out busting their asses on a film set like as we speak. I know that uh, Aaron... Um, was having some stuff at, ha at, at at home that he had to take care of, and I know that Alex, unfortunately, had a loss in the family that he is uh, having to uh, uh, spend time, and he's uh, having to uh, spend time with his family and uh, deal with that. So we wish him all the best here. So um, definitely so, but you've got me tonight. So tonight I will take you through all of the wonderful little horror films that I've chosen tonight, which is funny because... Tonight is the night that I picked some of the nastiest f films for us to watch. Like, two really hardcore movies. And I'm the only one that, that gets to talk about them. So, apparently, they were just they may have been too much for the rest of my, uh, rest of my, uh, my co-hosts. But, uh, you know, well, I guess we're going to find out. So, we're going to go through it. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that, Aaron... Oh uh, yeah, uh, sorry about yeah. Aaron's his full anxiety anxiety attack, and then back went into full blown spasm. I'm sorry to hear that, bud. So I hope you rest up, and I hope you feel better. But thank you for being in the live chat. I do appreciate that. But thank you very much. And of course, yes, all of our best wishes to Alex. I know he's dealing with that right now. It always sucks. Um, I hope uh, he and the family are doing well. So, uh, let's see. So before we get started, let me go ahead and fire this one up. Bam, there is our banner. There's our Patreon banner so everybody can see all the amazing individuals that help us to make this show possible. We do greatly appreciate it. So, uh, first and foremost, let's run down the list and see who is in the live chat with us tonight, or with me tonight. Travis Brown is here. Good to see you, Travis Brown. Sarcasm as well. Good to see you. Angel Rivera is here. Good to see you, Angel Rivera. Says, made it on time. What up, what up? Good to see you, Angel Rivera. Denova28, uh, good to see you. Says, good afternoon, my fellow horror connoisseurs. 
We definitely have uh, have some for a, for a stronger palette tonight. But good to see you, Genova28. Gosh, if Heckfire is here, says, yo, what up, Big Pebs? Good to see you. Thanks so much for hanging out. Tony Regime says, hello, Weekend Horror, and gives us the obligatory ghost. Thank you, Tony Regime. It's about that time. It is almost spooky time. Very, very soon, we will be in the greatest month of the year. Because we all know that pre-September is just, that all of September is pretty much just pre-Halloween. So, uh, but good to see you. Thanks so much for being here. Elizabeth Sylvester says, hello, JL. And we can horror. Good to see you, Elizabeth Sylvester. Tony Regime, yes, I did happen to go, um, and I will be covering that in a live stream on my personal channel. So you'll get the notification for that. We'll talk all about it. Uh, Joshua Lee is here. Good to see you. Says the master says you can't stay here. Yes. <laughs> well, the while the master is away. Uh, Gosh, Backfire says it's the one beardsman. It's the one beardsman. Wait, what show is this? That's right. Yeah, just the one beardsman tonight. Sir Casm's here. Good to see you. Thanks so much for being here, bud. Um, let's see who else have we got. Charlie Welch, the only man on the internet you never make a bet with. Good to see you, Charlie. Thanks for hanging out. So many of our amazing supporters here. This is, this, this is true, J uh, Charlie. Uh, JL can talk. It'll be fine. I hope so. I pulled it through one time because it was nervous energy that kind of carried me through that, that first solo episode. But I know that I can, I, I'm pretty sure I can do okay. We'll find out. Uh, let me see. Oh, excellent. Tony Jesus, my t-shirts from the season finale arrived today. Fantastic. Good to hear, good to hear. Everybody should have, um, everybody's prizes should have arrived, except for maybe not the last episode, the season premiere, so that was for Denova. That shirt may not have arrived, but everyone else should have their prizes. And of course, the uh, movies will be going out at the top of the month for uh, all of our patrons. So we should be all caught up as far as prizes go. Oh, Freight Edges is here. Says, the truth is, they did, uh... The truth is, did they finally find the bodies in your backyard? No, he's buried them deep. He's buried them uh, a secret window deep. So, and he's enjoying the corn. <laughs> oh, great. He moved into my backyard. That's fantastic. Oh, man. Um, I remember when my back locked up to me one time. Because uh, I, I already have a bad back. And I jacked it at work one time. And it, it sent me to the emergency room. Because yeah, I, I could barely move. Uh, I, I think... I was able to I was I was able to force myself to stand up and then kind of wobble my way to the car and I drove myself to the emergency room because I couldn't obviously you know no one can afford ambulance rides it's ridiculous I, I I could probably afford it I just I'm not going to pay that much you know it's essentially like a medical taxi cab and I get the medical treatment but like the 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 ambulance ride alone is like so much money so I just drove myself. That's true. I did go all Captain Spaulding on the rest of the crew. I absolutely did. Good. Uh, let me see. Jinju's here as well. Good to see you, Jinju. Thanks so much for being here. It says, yep, yeah, I'm all alone, but hopefully we can we can muddle through it tonight. Uh, the amazing choices that I have, uh, that I've selected for us. Let me see. Yep, and I can polish those shirts. I promise. I, will, I, I Okay, I really shouldn't promise. I should not promise that I will not get like drawn into a turd polishing phenomenon because we don't because technically we only have really like one bad one tonight the other ones were actually fairly decent um i would say one mediocre two really really interesting and one kind of bad one and uh, there's a story behind that one as well so and uh, so we'll get there all right so i see ever i think i caught everybody here if I miss somebody saying hi to somebody, I do apologize. But thank you to all of the amazing uh, channel supporters. <clears throat> thank you to all of the patrons. Your names are in the banner there. We appreciate you hanging out. Um, yes, Joshua Lee, if you need to, you can request a different size. You absolutely can. Andrew Rivera said, oh, this is my hoodie from the season finale right two days ago. Fantastic. Those hoodies are amazing, aren't they? 
So, week, official Week in Horror hoodie has the artwork, has the limited edition number one artwork on the back from the very first season. Oh, I love those hoodies. They're fantastic. Oh, let's see. And you plant endangered plants uh, atop the grave. That's true, Jinju. You absolutely know. You've been listening. You've been, you've been reading my blog. Fantastic. Uh, Sir Games is one turd to polish, one mediocre ghost story, one serial killer, and one that doesn't exist on the internet. So, Sircasm, there's a story behind that last one. There is a story behind that one, and I will get to it, I promise. So, first and foremost, let's talk about it. Obviously, uh, it's you know coming up on the end of the month. Um, we're officially talking about movies that released in October, but officially this is this is still September 28th, so um, Halloween is coming. Next month will be the month of, of spookiness, and I love Halloween. It's when the, you know, the, the weather starts to turn, and things get really, really nice outside, and of course, uh, you know, angling down towards the spooky time. So unfortunately, Halloween is on a Monday this year, which kind of sucks. Because typically kids are in school, they don't you know don't get to stay out late. So that means Halloween typically happens much earlier, which it's light out, and I kind of need to be dark so I can scare the uh, scare the kids. But um, we'll make that. We you know we'll make do. We make do. That's what we do. So, but um, if you have horror, because I like this, I typically will set my house up like a, like very scary outside. I make a graveyard out in the front yard. I put cobwebs everywhere. And, you know, I use special lighting and special sound effects. And um, I typically am out there scaring the hell out of them. And those are typically my Halloween plants. What I do every single year, I try to make it a habit. So I, you know, I think I've done it every year for the past 17, 18 years. So I have a really nice collection of shit that I put out in the front of the house to scare all the trick-or-treaters. I literally try to scare the shit out of them. So, but definitely, if you have Halloween plans, let us know what they are down in the comments below or at weekendhorrorgmail.com. Aaron, uh, I know Alex would love to hear from you. Aaron probably would too. But uh, let us know what your Halloween plans are. Do you do you set up the house? Do you, uh, do you know, hand out trick-or-treaters or do you just shut the light off and be like, fuck this, I'm going to watch scary movies all night? Let us know what you do for Halloween, what your plans are. And of course... Oh, Aaron says, I stopped murdering for Halloween. I find it too cliche. Yes, <laughs> just like all the monsters in Buffy. How they don't they don't go out on Halloween because it's cliche. Oh, we're going to get those little breaks as I, as I get something to drink. All right, so as everyone is asking, I noticed that Denova put in the chat. Um, I think it was, let me see. Denova put in the chat. I've been voting every day for jail. Thank you so much. Very uh, thank you. And Josh releases. How's the face contest go? That was the next thing we were going to talk about. So, as everyone knows, as everyone who's with face of horror, face of horror, as everyone knows who knows week in horror, that I am trying to go for the face of horror contest. The face of horror contest is an online contest. It's pretty much you know you get your you get your circle of friends to vote for you, and the person who gets the most votes you know makes it on to the next round, and hopefully I can win this bad boy. The prizes are fantastic. It's money, a walk-on role for a for an independent film, uh, a photo shoot with Kane Hodder, and a two-night stay in Buffalo Bill's house from Silence of the Lambs. All kinds of free, all kinds of really really cool stuff. So uh, you can, and of course. I know that those, let me see here, and I'm going to put that link, the link is in the description, but I'll currently put it here as well, for anybody who hasn't seen it, that's the link where you can go and vote for me, you get one vote per day, or if you want to donate, you can donate, make a donation to the B Plus Foundation, 
which is the largest provider of financial assistance to families dealing with pediatric cancer. I've looked into them. They're a fantastic program. They've been going a long time, and they do a lot of really, really good work helping families out, very similar to like Ronald McDonald House and St. Jude's. Um, they also do, they do some fantastic work in helping uh, parents whose children have been diagnosed with various cancers. So, um, but yeah, if you if you donate to them, you get one dollar for every dollar that you vote. And of course, you can donate you can donate as much as you want, and then those votes can go towards me as well. But it's not required. That's only if you can and only if you want to. So otherwise, you can get one free vote per twenty four hours. So basically, you vote. 24-hour clock starts. Once the 24-hour clock uh, is, is up, you can vote again. So that's pretty much how it goes. Currently, as it stands, I am first in my group. There are many groups. I do not know how many groups there are. But I am seeing um, I am seeing bits and pieces all over the place of, of people who are in their own groups that are not in my group. So I know that there are probably a bunch of groups out there. But I am currently first in my group, and uh, it's looking really, really good. The next cut is tomorrow, at thir Thursday at 10 p.m. Central Time, 8 p.m. Pacific Time, and I'm going to be doing a little live stream so I can keep people, uh, you know, just kind of watch as that goes along. But the um, we're currently in the group round, and I am currently first. And it looks like let me go ahead and there we go. Let's fix that. Looks like one day, two hours, 45 minutes, and 28 seconds left on the clock. So, that's pretty much it. So, if you use the link that I put in the chat, you can uh, pop over and throw me a vote. And I do appreciate that, because that would be a big win for Week in Horror. Oh, uh, Travis Preston, what happened to the After Dark and Bloodbath, Bloodbath debate for this month? Just wondering. So, the after because of how wild this uh, because of how wild this month has been for everybody else... We weren't really be able to put on an After Dark like we normally would. Eugene and Johnny have been extraordinarily busy with some film jobs they've got going on. We have a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes. So I decided for just for last month, and I'm going to do the same for this month, I'm going to do something a little special just for the patrons who have access to the After Dark. It's something just a little bit special and something for me to y'all. And it's kind of like a another kind of first glimpse thing that I'm going to put out there for just specially for you guys. So you're going to get that access to that this month. And of course, Bloodbath will be taking place on the 30th. So those invites will go out the day of the 30th. And they'll go out in plenty of time and then our special judges can come in and uh, and hang out with us. So the After Dark uh, will be another special little tidbit before we get back to the trivia games. And then of course, uh, the Bloodbath will be on the 30th. I know we're cutting it close towards the end of the month, but uh, it will be on the 30th. Oh, let's see here. I saw we had some more people jumping in. Uh, let me see. I see Fred Edge says, We don't get many trick-or-treaters in Australia. Last Halloween, I went down to the shop and missed a couple of kids, so after I got home and grabbed candy, I chased them down the road in my car. That's one way to do it. That is one way to do it, Fred. Absolutely. Donnie does that's here. Good to see you. Donnie does that. Thanks very much for being here. And let's see. Oh, uh, uh, Angel Verse says, uh, Weekend Horror is always first in uh, first star stab hearts. Oh, I appreciate that, Angel. Thank you very, very much. Thank you. And Annie says, like OnlyFans? Ah, yes, but face of horror. So yeah, vote, vote for me there. Thank you, Gosh Effect Fires. Just voted again. Do appreciate that. All right. And I see NA is in the house. Good to see you, NA Annie. Thanks for joining one of our long term supporters. Thank you so much, NA Annie. All right. So. 
gave you the so the updates on uh, kind of the plans for Halloween, uh, Face of Horror update, and of course the last thing we want to talk about before we dive into tonight's selections and check out those trailers and really talk about some really really gory nasty stuff. Um, I was excited about this month. I, I wish there, I wish some of the other guys were here. Uh, we're going to take a look at the the it's finally dropped because this bad boy comes out October fourteenth, I do believe. Let me see if I can remember. No, October fifteenth or sixteenth? October sixteenth. I'm not sure. We're going to find out because it is the last trailer for Halloween ends. Let's take a look. All right, so October 14th is when that comes out. So October 14th, which is a Wednesday. So October 14th, the new uh, Halloween ends. The final in the tr the final uh, en entry in the trilogy. So looking forward to that. Let's see what the reactions were in that one. So let me see here. Um, Sirkan says four years living on rat meat and raw sewage. That which does not that which does not kill me makes me murder. This is so true. Sarcasm. Absolutely. Travis Brown says, "Oh, a throwback to the first Halloween." Yep, you saw that in there. Tony Regime says, Johnny O is going to find so many things to complain about in Halloween ends. He absolutely will. And you can guarantee that uh, I will be showing that when it arrives. Just like I did the, for the other two Halloweens when they dropped. I'm going to show this one as well because I'm going to stream directly from Peacock. And uh, we're going to take a look at that. It's going to be amazing. Uh, let's see. Yep, the callback to the first one. Uh, just like in the second film, there was a callback to there was a callback to Halloween three, which I thought was really cool. To Season of the Witch, I thought that was a pretty nice little uh, pretty nice little Easter egg. Charlie Welch says hashtag Johnny hates all. He absolutely does. He hates all. Travis Brown says hope there's no car door gun slam in this one. <laughs> I don't think there's going to be, but you never know. <laughs> don't count them out. Oh, but yeah, so interesting stuff. So definitely let us know down in the comments below, or of course at weekendhorrorgmail.com what you think of the uh, the final trailer for Halloween Ends and what you're expecting from the film. Are you looking forward to it? Are you not looking forward to it? Are you like Johnny O and you just hate everything? Uh, we'd love to hear what you think. All right. Uh, Joshua Lee says that first jump scare actually startled me. When he, when he grabbed the kid who was, uh, who, like, who was walking through the sewer like it when he snapped. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. So that should get us all caught up so we can dive into tonight's Horror selections. Let's do it. Did I get anybody else that popped in? I didn't see anybody else that popped in. Nope, I'm all cut up. Fantastic. As a matter of fact, I can go ahead and do that. All right. So, let's get right into it. Hey, Rodinella's name. I, I knew I was going to have somebody pop in. Rodinella's name is here. Good to see you. Says, I'm late. You're not late. We're just getting started. Good to see you, bud. Gabba Gabba to you. I appreciate you being here. Alright, so for our first selection tonight, and uh, my apologies to anyone who saw the uh, community post and went to go watch this one, because this one is a bit on the tough side. Um, released October 2nd, 2012, we have the movie Fanatomorphos. Let's check out this trailer. Fair warning. So, <laughs> Aaron Reese says, Fanatomorphos, the rotting tramp. <laughs> This is a pretty. This is a pretty rough one. Zombification. Uh, <laughs> yeah, this is true. Yeah, Rodolfo Sam says it's a tough one. Meaning I'm gonna have to work to polish this deuce. I will actually say that no. So this is not an absolutely terrible film. So I will say this. Let's so first. Let's take a look at the breakdown on it. So Thanatomorphos is a 2012 Canadian body horror film directed by Eric Faladero in his directorial debut. It was starring Caden Rose, Emile Baudry, Erica Cantieri, and Rock Dennis Gagnon. So the film in and of itself is an extreme. It's extremely cheap. Yeah, very, very cheaply done. 
and it follows the story of uh, Laura, who is a very who's uh, essentially she's an artist who is suffering from depression, and she's involved in a she's in an abusive relationship with her boyfriend. One day, after after some particularly rough intercourse, she finds a bruise on her body that begins to uh, expand and then uh, overtake her, and as she slowly begins to rot away from the inside out. Um, she eventually winds up kind of, you know, her introversion turns into extroversion. She finds uh, power that she never knew she had, and she winds up kind of like descending into uh, madness and chaos until the eventual horrific conclusion. Yeah, Travis Brown, you can you can say that it's the horror version of Nymphomaniac because there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, nudity and a lot of there's a lot of nudity and uh, but that's not really where the graphic stuff is because the nudity is pretty much her and in some shots of her boyfriend but here is where it's the the real graphic goriness and because what was important about the movie and it's like it's like it's a powerful story if you're able to actually watch the film so the film's a bit of a slow burn it's very very cheaply done it's very very it's very much an art house film i would almost say david cronenberg meets uh von trier so it's designed if you can dig through the visual spectacle of course the the especially towards the the, the second act and the third act when the gore really starts ramping up um, you can get a really, you see a really powerful tale about not only the objectification of women, but the internalization of that objectification. Essentially how women uh, are, you know, have these expected roles and these expected um, duties that they perform through, you know, pretty much in their lives and how the vast majority of the people around them, because we're so self-involved, we end up taking that for granted. And most people wind up turning inward on themselves and their experiences, you know, can feel like they're dying, especially when you couple it with, uh, notions of chronic depression and uh, being a natural being naturally introverted and so that depression just kind of like weighs on you and eventually you know wears you down and eventually rots you away because you don't know where the depression begins and where, where the depression ends and you begin so we see this kind of metaphorical journey where no typically this would be kind of like the mental condition this would be her deteriorating mental condition take made manifest as her body slowly but surely decomposes away the difficulty in this is that it's a the reason it's so difficult is because not only the treatment of the of the actor of the woman in this not only the treatment of Laura by her boyfriend the all kind of like even those who come to her defense come to her defense non altruistically they all have ulterior motives and so you get this sense that she's completely despite the fact that she has a circle of friends people know her she's completely and totally isolated she and she it's it stymied her to the fact that she can't even express herself in her artwork she's constantly she's and at one point she's rejected by a, i guess an art school that she applied to and she can't even admit that to her closest friends so she is completely isolated and alone which is very very similar to the notion of after you die that's the one thing you experience alone. You die alone, and of course you're buried alone, and then you decompose and you and you and you rot away in your in your like either in your coffin or wherever that happens to be. You just that, that's an that's all an internalized experience. Pretty much it. She just gets to experience it in real time as it's happening to her, and that's where the difficulty is. Uh, that's where the difficulty in the film is, is because uh, whereas. The camera technology, the lighting technology, and sound were all kind of like on the mediocre side. It more than makes up for it in the extreme effects. Not to mention that kind of like 80s art house, 
almost like early MTV music video effects of her dreams. Because we have a few dream sequences in there. And all of it obviously is very it is done very, very cheaply. But all of that money that they saved handling all of that cheap stuff and having pretty much a one location set, which is oh, which is it's all set in her apartment was they can make up for it in the practical effects, in the practical effects of this young woman slowly but surely rotting away. And the artists who did this, who were behind this, uh, spent, I think it was three months, uh, I think over three months, uh, studying uh, decomposition in its various forms, the slow but steady process of this, so they could ensure that everything they depicted was legitimately done and and was as close to real life as possible, which is why it is so hor horrifically... Uh, it's it, I would say it's stomach churning in that respect, because not only it's what you physically see on the exterior, like what you see happening to her skin, what you see happening to her eyes, her fingernails, her hair, everything that's going on, and of course you know when the skin starts, you know when what happens to her skin happens and the maggots start showing up. Um, the problem is you begin to inter you get to imagine what's going on internally inside of her, and so it's really really funky. Obviously, chat took a 503, we came right back. Oh, my, my, it may have been a YouTube hiccup. Sorry about that. Um, but yeah, this is a really, really tough one. And that's where the real winner on this is, is because essentially, essentially, the horrific notion, and I think that this is one of the best meta, like, Thanatomorphose, despite its, it, despite the horror, the, the horrific appeal, or the, I say the horrific, you know, visage of what you're seeing on screen, I think that this is one of the more powerful depictions or, you know, metaphorical depictions of dep of chronic depression and internalization of angst that I've ever seen on, that I've ever seen on film. It can literally, I know from personal experience and from the experience of people, uh, people in my life that th that is what it can feel like. It can feel like everyone around you is just there to take from you and no one is there to contribute anything. And that everyone seems isolated, even though you're, you feel isolated, and everyone else seems isolated because you can't reach out and experience anything beyond that because of that crippling depression. And that essentially, what people would experience emotionally and psychologically is actually happening to her, you know, physically. And even times that can manifest manifest itself. With some individuals, can see that that whole that idea of body dysmorphia and the dissatisfaction with themselves. This is one of the I say one of the premier examples of what can be done, what can successfully be told with practical effects. Now, a lot of people I think are going to get a little tripped up because the film is so cheap looking and it starts out really, it start, it's very much a slow burn until it finally gets into the, into the really horrific aspects because it takes time for it to get there. And yes, the movie title does drive its name from Thanatos, the god of death. Thanatomorphos meaning changing into death. So, and that you, from direct, uh, straight from the director on that one. But yeah, it's a particularly difficult one, especially when she attempts to break out of it and she she realizes that she's walking, she's heading down a path from which she does not want to go to, but inevitably she finds she cannot break away from it. So she eventually embraces it and just goes with it and leans into it, you know, and with what she kind of like, because in, in embracing her finality, she finds her freedom and is able to finally take at least some modicum of control of her life. Now, for those who are uh, kind of big music fans, you'll recognize that the effects that were in this were similar to the effects that were used uh, for a Canadian band called The Birthday Massacre. Uh, and uh, I'm a big fan of them. I like them. And, of course, on there, I believe it's on, for the music, for the official music video they used, they did for uh, their song Destroyer. 
they actually used a set they used, used similar techniques inspired inspired from this film in order to uh do the decomposition of the girl in that video as well only it was a few years after it was a couple years i think it was 2014 this is 2012 and so they really went and they did a really phenomenal job but it, it kind of ends the exact same way with the skeleton kind of you know screaming and then finally going then all of her flesh falls off you know it's pretty pretty gross a form of decomposition yes you know um, but yeah, the <laughs> Aaron says, Meh, that's my life. This one is a tough one. It will hit people on a variety of levels, not just in the stomach because of its really horrific effects, because it's not like it's bloody and gory and, and people, yeah, there is some gore in it. There are a couple of murders that take place. She winds up, you know, taking her rage out on the two guys that were pretty much just, you know, using her for what she had, using her for her body and, you know, for their own personal satisfaction, she eventually takes that out on them. And some pretty, you know, pretty just, you know, blah, she just kind of rage kills two dudes. Um, her boyfriend and the guy who's coming after her. But it's also in that it's not what you would expect as far as the gore. It's, it's legitimately a depiction of, or as realistic a depiction of decomposition as you can get. Which means it's not going to be all bloody and all splattery and blood all over the place and limbs falling off. It's going to be that slow, sl that slow, grotesque, dripping, eventually, you know, falling apart uh, uh, effect that just takes time, you know? And eventually it gets to a point where, you know, putrescence begins to set in and it gets really, ooh, really, really nasty. But if you can stomach a movie such as this, if you can get through it, you can see past it to see a really, really powerful story. Unfortunately, this movie, like some others we've talked about in the past, I think loses itself in its practical effects. While I understand, and, and the, problem, the problem would be was the director here, um, the director Eric Fallardo, uh, is not Lars von Trier. That's, that's the biggest problem. To do a movie like this, oh, and he's not David Cronenberg. He's not Cronenberg. He's not Van Tr uh, Von Trier. The problem is, is that it's the lackluster appeal of the rest of the film, how cheaply it's shot, that detracts from this. There are other movies that are out there that do it a little bit better. Bite is one of them about a girl who gets bit, a girl uh, on the verge of her wedding who gets bitten by a some sort of creature in Costa Rica and winds up mutating into a bug human, into this gross fish bug human, which is really, really nasty. That's a really horrific one. And uh, But that one had extremely high-end production values and high, because it had the money to do not only the extreme practical effects, but also look really good leading up to those moments. So, unfortunately... It's in the cheapness is where it's kind of lost. This would make a fantastic little art house film, something that you would show probably in festival, uh, and, and probably a really good um, uh, college. Uh, like if you were to turn this in, it's like you're kind of like your 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 final college uh, project. I could definitely see this as a winner, but as far as like a professionally made film, it it kind of lacks it. And I think, but it's only because of the money. The money just wasn't there. So they shot with what they absolutely could. But as far as creativity goes, as far as special effects goes, as far as the writing goes, as far as the acting goes, it's all decent. Everything is there. The problem is just it just doesn't look great, you know, unfortunately. Which actually kind of adds to the appeal of the practical effects because practical effects, the, those kind of effects in high definition might actually take away. You might actually, it might actually seem a kind of a kind of fake. But in this respect, because the camera's not that great and the lighting's not that great, it comes off even worse. So that may be kind of it. 
Uh, Tony Regine said the fly did the fingernails and teeth really well, as did the nanomorphose, as did Bite. Bite did it really well uh, also. Kirkham says, handling depression the way Babadook handled grief. <laughs> okay, yeah, you could say that. So Aaron Reese says, I think he channeled so much into the effects that it reduced the effectiveness of everything else. It damages the immersion. I would agree. I would agree. And he just doesn't have the didn't have the tech. He doesn't have the equipment in order to kind of elevate it to that respect. Could you imagine if he was able to capture all of the decomposition scenes with the same visceral nature of the camera work he did here and then everything else in a much higher quality with better lighting, better sound, and just better visualization so we can actually visualize the space that she's in. So, and I get that there, there are pluses and minuses to either side. The lack of definition allows us to internalize more with her experience. We're able to, we're not lost in the details or in the minutia that's in her apartment, in her very, very sparse apartment. We're not lost in the minutia of her daily life. We're internalizing her and her experience, which is what is important. So it works both ways. The cheapness can play to both sides, but unfortunately, it just kind of drags the story down in that respect because so much was put into the practical effects, there's not much left elsewhere, which is kind of a shame. Let me see here. Um, all her friends are hipster assholes. They were all hipster assholes. They absolutely were. Oh, yeah. And let me see. I think because I think cabin oh cabin fever was pretty rough. It had some pretty rough ones as well. That falling falling apart kind of grossness. Yeah, there were some gross gross moments in cabin fever. Eli Roth, thank you very much for that. Yeah, I would say sarcasm. You, are, I think you're correct. This movie is one of those ones that needs a decent budget remake. A decent like a budget remake on this a, a budgeted remake on Thanatomorphose would be pretty solid. It would just I would want to if I had the money I would want to put together the the exact same team that helped to put this together I wouldn't because I want those minds together again working in tandem and improving upon the things they knew didn't work and uh, you know trying new stuff to see if they can really really solidify the story uh, let me see Aaron Reese says Weekend Horror I think he also had limited options for the main actress there aren't a lot of actresses willing to work full nude on the cheap understandably true. Um, this is absolutely true because if I remember correctly, um, Caden Rose, I think the, one of the movies that she did before this was, uh, like lesbo vampires or vampire lesbians or something like that. So she's willing to do it. I th she may be a model first and foremost, but, uh, but yeah, that was like one of the first films that she did was like lesbian vampires. <laughs> That's true. Renella Sam. It was no incredible melting man. It's true. Fred Edges says, if you ever have actually seen someone who is at the absolute bottom, it does see, it does seem like they are rotting away from drugs and their lifestyle seems like they're decomposing. Agreed. Absolutely. It's rough. And like I said, it's a powerful story if you can get through it. You know, you got to be able to unfortunately dig down to get to the to the meat of the story. As gross as that sounds, now all of a sudden in my head, but yeah, um, it's just one of the things. It's like it's a nightmare in practical effects. You know, because it depicts it as realistically as possible, and with that depiction, it's going to come because it's not what you're expecting. You know, you may have an idea of what to expect, but they really deliver on in a form that you just don't see coming but you can understand it's like ah so this is what goes on you know deep beneath the earth and, and you know after after you're buried away this is what this is the stuff that you that you don't really ever see and they don't really ever focus on because it's really really horrible so and i think the only di i think the only difference as far as the only change i would have made acting wise is that when the second guy walks into the apartment I definitely would have had him reacting a little bit better to the smell. <laughs> I definitely would. But definitely, this was a particularly... Oh, Mr. Kev says, Bah, chicks that'll get naked for money literally dime a dozen. But one that can act is another story altogether. 
I would say that once she gets, once the makeup's going, once the once the 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 effects are taking place, and she's really really far gone, her acting gets really really gets better because there's something about being immersed in that that enables you to kind of let go. Some of the best acting I've ever done personally has been in the sound booth when I know I'm not physically on camera and I can just let my, you know, like vocally, I can just let go and just do whatever I want and I can have fun with it. It's the most freeing because you're not aware, because you're not keenly aware of what your, of what your tool, your body is doing at all times. When you have all those prosthetics on, when you have all the makeup on and you can barely even see yourself, that really allows for everything to come out because you feel as much a part of the set as you do kind of like your your own self. You feel more a part of the set than you do your own self. So that allows you to kind of it's kind of freeing in that respect. For some people it can be very claustrophobic, like um I would say in V for Vendetta, uh, Hugo Weaving or no, it was a uh, um the original actor who was playing V uh, felt that he could not um, that he could not act when he had the mask on, so he had to turn down the role. Or no, I think he he filled partial scenes, but he wasn't able to complete it. Hugo Weaving was brought in to finish the rest because acting with the mask was just too stifling, and he just couldn't do it right. Apparently, this is what I've heard. I'm saying, oh, like fire hydrant vomit. <laughs> All right, but definitely this was a particularly hard uh, body horror to watch, and but. The question is, I want to ask the audience, was it the hardest body horror for you to watch? I know there's some tough ones out there. You would talk about movies like Rabbit or The Fly or, you know, Society. Uh, let me know or let us know down in the chat below in the live chat or uh, down in the live chat in the comments below or, of course, at weekendhorrorgmail.com. What was the hardest body horror for you to watch? Was there one that particularly that hit you really hard, particularly in the stomach? And you're just like, ah, oh, I can't do it, or you had to turn away. Or is nothing. You know, are you iron are you just iron stomach and you can sit through anything? Definitely let us know. Uh weekendhorrorgmail.com or at uh or you know, down in the live chat or of course in the comments below. Because those interactions really help with the algorithm. And be sure to smash that like button. Smash that like button, smash that, subs that subscribe button if you haven't. I always forget to ask that because it always feels weird, you know, doing a podcast asking people to like the show. Travis Brown says, I don't know. I did not watch this film. <laughs> I can understand that, bud. I did. No, no harm. Sir Captain says, Dead Alive. Ugh, my stomach still rumbles on Dead Alive. When the ear comes off, falls in the custard. No, no, yeah, that was fucking gross. That was just disgusting. Joshua Lee says, Hands down, Human Centipede 2. That one was fucking rough. Human Centipede, it. It was okay. The Nanomorphos actually hit hit me a little bit harder than Human Centipede. Human Centipede was was graphic and extreme, but it lost me in the absurdity. It was so fucking absurd that I was like, okay, I can kind of break away from this. Meet the Feebles was pretty good. Yeah, early Peter Jackson there. Meet the Feebles was pretty fucked up. That was just a fucked up Muppets on crack or you know Avenue Q on you know methamphetamines. Aaron Reese says, honestly, the nail to the foot was the worst part. I've got to think about my feet ever since a needle buried uh, 1.5 inches into my soul. Ouch! That would hurt. Yes, when he stepped on the nail in the opening of the film. That would hurt like a motherfucker. Oh, wrote, wrote it in the last name, says Meet the Feebles. Yeah, Meet the Feebles was pretty fucked up. Yeah, it was funny. It was, you know, it was, it was a, kind of a laugh riot, but it's also really fucking disturbing. You know, just super disturbing. <laughs> For those who haven't seen it, early Peter Jackson. Meet the Feebles, Brain Dead, uh, or sorry, Dead Alive, Bad Taste. You know, early uh, Peter Jackson. There's a, you know, so if you haven't seen Society, Society is a pretty rough one too. Brian Yuzna um, really knows how to bring it. Society was pretty fucked up. 
and pretty much Cronenberg, early you know, early Cronenberg, especially if you've got you know Rabbit or you've got um, The Fly, or uh, there's a couple other ones. Oh, son of a bitch! Uh, I'm trying to remember the one about the car accidents, about the people who get off on being in car accidents. I can never remember. It was fucking James Spader. I know who was in that movie. I just can't remember the goddamn name of it. Oh well, but but yeah, Cronenberg's got some really good ones in there. Not to mention, um, ex, you know, um, uh, ex, was Existence, and then of course uh, his new one. Oh, Crash! Thank you, Tony Regime. Crash, and then of course, uh, and of course, anything. Yeah, Genova says any cabin fever. Absolutely. Oh, Pet Cemetery says the big sister scene. <laughs> Another was Japanese or I saw the devil. Absolutely, and I think Cronenberg's um, uh, uh, newest one, Crimes of the Future. That one was pretty intense. You know, weird, weirdly clean, but really intense for Cronenberg's work. Really, really crazy stuff. All right. So let's move on to our second selection tonight. So released October 3rd, 2002. Oh, Umaki Spiral. Yes. Joshua Lee brings up Spiral. So let's not forget about things like Umaki. Yes, Spiral was pretty twisted. Probably was pretty crazy. But uh, yes, uh, released October 3rd, 2002, we have the film Darkness. Let's check this out. Alright, Darkness. So, directed by... I gave myself difficult names this time. Uh, directed by Yome Balaguero, and starring Anna Paquin, Lena Olin, Ian Glenn, Giancarlo Giannini, and Felia Martinez... Uh, the film follows a family who moves into a house in the Spanish countryside uh, where six children disappeared during an occult ritual 40 years before. Uh, the young, the daughter and the son of the family are subjected to increasingly terrible disturbances within the house. Um, so, uh, Sir Ken says, I, I'm sorry, I know there are a few natural child actors out there, but the kid that played Paul just sucked. He wasn't very good, and to be perfectly honest, I'm going to say I don't think Anna Paquin was actually that good at all. It was actually that good as well. Um, I just I, this was before she kind of like I, I think she really really got her her uh, her confidence as far as an actor goes. I think she was kind of thrust into the limelight, but Miramax was known for doing that. So I think that she kind of was out of her element a little bit, but she did her or this is Dimension. I think uh, and Dimension Miramax. I think that they were they often did that. They tried to grab people who were up and coming and try to thrust them into into stardom really, really quick so they could capitalize on them. And I just don't think she was at her best. Um, but that's just me. That's I think she's gotten much, much better. She was fantastic in true blood, and I love her in her new series. So um, but yeah, this she this is early on for her. So the film in itself was is rated PG thirteen. So as far as you know, you're gonna be limited to your typical jump scares and kind of like ominous overtones throughout the entire movie. But the what works for the movie um i would say the movie works and it doesn't work it's kind of a 50 50 for me because ostensibly uh old houses make fan, make for fantastic production value and i always appreciate when and when the 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 time and attention and money is put into creating a very very lively set now this was shot in an actual house and a very very old house at that i think the house that they shot it was a little over 100 years old in spain and so it has its natural um kind of age that plays into the production value of it it's a very very large house it has all of its little nooks and crannies it settles at night and so 
you can't you can't really make that kind of production value. And so when you have things, when you're shooting overseas, you're shooting in Spain, you have the lovely Spanish villages nearby, you have all of the beautiful fields, and just you know everything about the architecture is fantastic. You have a lot of production value going into the uh, film. Not to mention, shot in a particular way, use, utilizing the camera angles and the lighting and shooting at certain times of day can really add for a, uh, an atmospheric effect, especially when your American actors are out of are out of place, they're like out of the country. Because when you take the American actors out of America, things can for your for American audiences things can feel very very strange because you can sense and you can pick up on the American actors kind of they're uncomfortable in a foreign setting because they don't know Spain like they know America. If you're in America anywhere, you always kind of feel at home if you're an American, just because you know you, you're an American. Losing that kind of home field advantage, you're kind of a fish out of water as you're acclimating to a new society and a new culture. So you get that, you're able to internalize that. So I love the setting. The setting and the setup were all fantastic. The problem was, despite all of this stuff that they had working for them, they really kind of dropped the ball in a lot of respects. And I think it was a matter of, it was the matter of writing, it was the fact that they went for a PG-13, which allowed them, which pretty much, you know, disallowed them to go for the natural scares, especially for the story that they were trying to tell, which was one of, you know, occult sacrifice, satanic sacrifice, in order to raise some sort of dark deity, or you know, to bring about some sort of darkness apocalypse or whatever. So, especially when you're dealing with the sacrifice, it would you know, child sacrifice. There are certain scares that you can go there, and certain like you know, imagery you can you can try to get where you can spend a little bit more time with. But in this, we only get it in flashes. And unfortunately, as far as the writing goes. I think they made the same mistake that the Baron, that Darren Lynn Boozman made with the Barons, is that they spent too much time with the because throughout the story we find out that the father has Huntington's and his Huntington's is beginning to affect his affect his mental health, and so as he's deteriorating and his mental health is declining, it begins to really really affect the dynamic in the family. But that steals away from the effect that the supernatural is having on the family as well. So you don't really know like who is being who's the the real danger here: the father who's growing increasingly uh, mentally unwell, or the actual ghosts that are in the house. So that becomes problematic, and it really starts to it kind of like disjoints the film. It's like, what are we really supposed to be afraid of? Because right now, the ghosts really haven't done anything besides move some pens around and like look creepy in the shadows, whereas the dad is legitimately like foaming at the mouth and like smashing around the house. So that's when it becomes problematic, is that it just was a it was a misstep, and I think this was an attempt to capitalize on Anna Paquin's rising stardom, the fact that she was an Oscar winner at such a young age, and to try and get her out there, but you know put her out there in a movie that was accessible to as big of an audience as possible, which of course limits what you can do script wise and uh, production wise, because there were little flashes in there, because obviously. The entire film telegraphs it that the dad was, because during the original 40 years ago uh, cult sacrifice, one of the children got away. There were supposed to be seven. Six were killed, or six disappeared, and then one vanished. They telegraph it very early on that the father is the one that got away. So now he's returned 40 years later to the same house for some weird reason, and now the, uh, and now the, um... The, the occult ritual can be completed. And, of course, we find out that, you know, Giancarlo Giannini uh, is involved in it. So, and things just, you know, kind of get kind of get wild and crazy. And it has a bit of a down ending. You know, it has that kind of like, you know, oh, you got the B ending. Kind of like in Silent Hill. But that's essentially where I felt it kind of going. I felt it kind of trying to take this Silent Hill turn when it really couldn't depict 
that kind of horror. So it winds up being more like, you know, um, what was it, uh, like Shat- like Broken with Lena, with Lena Headey about the doppelgangers coming through the coming through the glass. So it kind of had elements of that, kind of had elements of the Barons, but it really didn't, I don't think it was really kind of successful in trying to convey what it was trying to convey. It was very, very lackluster, you know, which was a shame. And, you know, that's the big example. Casting will not always save your production. Just because you cast Anna Paquin, just because you cast Lena Olin or Ian Glenn, who were all, and Giancarlo, Giancarlo Giannini, who are all magnificent actors in their own right, especially like legends like Lena Olin and Giancarlo, just because you were able to get a hold of them and pay them the money they want, and I know that they were using Giannini because they used him before uh, he was in Mimic, um, which was also a Dimension Pictures. So... I know that uh, just because you can afford them doesn't mean they're going to be able to salvage your film. And unfortunately, the name draw kind of pulls you into a bait and switch, which is where I think this movie kind of falls apart. It's just in the execution alone. They had a lot of things working for them so well and weren't able to pull it off, which is always just a damn shame to watch. Let me see here. So uh, Travis Brown says, PG-13 really hurts horror, hurts horror films. Absolutely. And Denova's right. It says, yeah, burn the place down and rebuild. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, Josh Lee, nope, not based on a true story. Uh, haven't found anything that would be that would connect to any kind of story in real life. Genova 28 says, I think it's a cliche when they use kids as a central point for curses or demon fodder. It always is because, you know, it's that, it's that emotional response. You just kind of kick the emotional response from the audience. Any parents in the audience be like, oh, yeah, that whole kind of thing. Uh, let me see. Freight Edge says Americans make so many haunted house and evil spirit movies. We make a bunch, but we but we typically do, but we make them in the context of like God and the devil. Whereas the Japanese and the oh, Japanese J horror and K horror will make them in the idea of spirits that are left behind, so like legitimate ghosts. But we don't they don't add that extra context of a heaven and a hell or a God and a devil in order to go along with that. Because with us in America, our puritanical foundations inform the horror movies that we typically watch, which is where like virtuous women become the final girls, and then of course spirits that are left over that are damned. You know, obviously, there can you know you know the devil gets involved, and God gets hell. You know, spirits passing on to the afterlife. All of that's added in as context for the spirit and the evil spirits, or you know like you know ghosts of witches and stuff like that are always in service to the devil. They always have to make make that apparent, and this is also that kind of thing. You know. Denova 28 says, kind of like Amityville, a little bit like Amityville, Amityville Horror, just very, very tame. You know, and it's possible. It's possible that the darkness could have been affecting the father, but he had that attack in the car, so it's hard to say. But And, he, and they already knew that he had Huntington's and that he was, he was having, a, it was affecting him again. So it's like, oh, he's having, a, he's having another attack. So they were aware of this. His Huntington's, his Huntington's just happened to be particularly advanced. Let's see, Aaron Reese says, they developed the leads for a deep back plot and then tried to wrap it up fast. They did. They wrapped up the third act really, really quick. Giancarlo Giannini puts out a pretty creepy performance as the grandfather who knows what's going on and wants to bring about the end, you know, with the coming with the, the coming eclipse. And he wants to bring that all across. But um, ultimately, it was just, it seemed really, really quick. Like, it's like all of a sudden, you know, the, 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 the whole thing is finished. The uh, the ritual is complete, and now we need and now we need to like wrap up what this apocalyptic scenario is. That's where all these doppelgangers are coming out of the dark, and they're actually like, are they demons? Are they ghosts? It's hard to say, but they can affect the living. And then we get our kind of B ending, or maybe D ending. This is true, Aaron Reese. Not every horror movie needs a damn twist. It absolutely does. It's just not necessary. Rodinella Sam says snappy writing would have you know, kept things ambiguous as to the father versus evil spirits. That's true. 
You know, writing like that is, and I'll admit, and I'll admit, even you know, for me, writing like that is difficult. Is 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 tough to try and, but it, it's not only in the writing; it's also in the execution by the director. If the director is not fully aware of what the writer is trying to convey, then you're going to have problems in the translation. So typically, the writers will oftentimes they'll write and they'll just be done and they'll pass it off. And usually, it may get a rewrite here, a rewrite here, or may they may get called in to do a follow up. But otherwise, they're you know, unless the writer is uniquely attached to the director or they're the same but the director and the writer are the same if you're going to get that difficulty in trying to translate the writer's work across to the screen because you're relying on someone else to read into what you've put and unfortunately uh, screenplays don't read like stage plays there's when you read a stage play there is a lot more detail as to what is going on within the book so instead of like your scene headers will be like this long instead of like two sentences You'll get like this much detail in a stage play because they have to indicate everything that's going on. What's going on in the set? What's going on here? Where's this placement? Why is it, you know, and everything is listed out. Bam, then the scene begins. But in a, in, in a screenplay, it's literally this person sitting in the house looking at this. And that's it. Because everyone needs those scripts to be really, really lean. And then, of course, you have the production Bible, which is elsewhere that the script supervisor is going through to make sure everybody's on point. So Silent Hill endings, yeah, I would say that. Oh yeah, Travis Brown's F ending is more like that's true. They got the bad ending. That's pretty much it. <laughs> Studio notes. Studio notes. Shudder. It's true. Wrote another last name. Studio notes suck. And I like to say uh, I think the ending fit the campaign. It's the rest of the script. That was the they got the ending they deserved. Is what they got. That's what they got. Denova twenty eight says not everyone needs to have an M Night Shyamalan twist. That's how you lose audiences. For example, the happening. Very true. The happening ending. Happening too. The happening ending. So he's got a new one coming out, uh, Knock at the Cabin, with Dave Bautista. So I'm curious about that one. I am. It's based off a book that, that Shyamalan, Shyamalan did not write. So I'm very, very curious as to, as to how that one's going to turn out. So I may have to read the book first. All right. But given that this was a classic kind of like haunted, haunted house story, you know, also the kind of like satanic occult thing, but it was more about ghosts in the house. Um, what is y'all's, I want to ask y'all, what is y'all's favorite haunted house horror? Or I would say a horror film that centers around a haunted house, be it demons or evil or spirits or, you know, whatever happens to be there. What's your favorite haunted house horror? Let us know down in the live chat or in the comments below. Help us with that algorithm or, of course, at weekendhorror at gmail.com. Angel Rivera's 13 Ghosts. Fucking A. That was a good movie. I like the original and the remake. Both of them were solid. That and the, uh, the sequel had Matthew Lillard. And he is just, uh, he's just a national treasure. Ooh, Aaron Reese says Legend of Hell House. Fuck yeah. Hell yes. Ah, Denova Twenty says Rose Red. Winchester was pretty good too. A little, a little kind of uh, maudlin, but an, an interesting story nonetheless. Uh, Haunting, uh, Haunting on Hill House, uh, Haunting of Hill House on Netflix is also really, really good. Travis Brown says the OG Poltergeist film, very nice. Sir Captain says got to go with Evil Dead, fantastic. Oh, experience the film as a film first. Good point, Rodent. Good point. Absolutely. And Rodent Los Angeles says, oh, there's some love for Poltergeist, fantastic. Joshua Lee says, 13 Ghosts and Cabin in the Woods. Very cool. All excellent choices. Fantastic. Be sure to let us know down in the comments below. All right. Would 1408 count? I think, okay, that's a good question. I think 1408 would count. Even though it's a room, but ostensibly, that's the kind of a home he's in right there. And you can technically live out of hotels. So you can stay in one room. The technically, so technically, I'd say it would count. I'm going to say 1408 counts. If you agree or disagree, 
Let us know. I think 1408 counts as a haunted house, as a uh, haunted house film. I do. Travis Brown says, I did not see Dave Bautista in that new trailer. Uh, he was the big dude. He was a big dude with the tattoos, but Dave Bautista is in uh, Knock, uh, Knock at the Cabin. Uh, Joshua Lee says, and the one I was sent, Winchester. Very cool. Uh, Gosh, Fakbar says, Amityville, because it changed me as a kid. I get that. Or The Shining, says Sarcasm. Absolutely. Aaron Reese says, I think Rose Red's ending let it down, though. You don't anchor a massive evil spirit into physical bodies. Uh, yeah, I can see that. Uh, Aaron Reese agrees. 1408 definitely counts. Absolutely. And so, and, and Annie, thumbs up. Thank you very much. Yep, I would. Oh, Tony Regimes with The Others was quite good. Also, a movie I think did it a little bit better and kind of accomplished what Darkness was trying to accomplish, just in the vein of atmosphere. I think for I think uh, the others pulled it off very, very well. Uh, Travis Brown says, "Where all I have seen is Drax have got, uh, Drax has gone invisible. <laughs> He's not moving." <laughs> but yes, uh, Dave Bautista is in the new uh, is in the new uh, M Night Shyamalan film. Uh, he is. I promise you, he is. I would not lie to you. All right, let's move on to our next one. Another pretty rough one and this one this one goes pretty deep um i think this is maybe this is the first no this is the second time we've gotten to talk about uh this director on this show so um i'm looking forward to this one so uh released october 4th 2018 we have the house that jack built let's take a look at this trailer so yes the house that jack built this was a this was a an interesting one. So uh, written and directed by Lars Van Trier, Lars Van Trier, sorry, Lars Van Trier, starring Matt Dillon in a role that just kind of blew my mind. Bruno Ganz, Uma Thurman, Siobhan Fallon Hogan, Sophie uh, Gravol, uh, Riley Cuff, and Jeremy Davies. So Matt Dillon fucking brought the game in this one. So the film um, essentially follows Jack, played by Matt Dillon, a serial killer who over a twelve year period commits a number of murders in the United States, um, in the U.S. state of Washington. Uh, utilize, and it, the film, uh, Von Trier utilizes Dante's Inferno as kind of like a meta text for the film, and it's structured as a series of flashback vignettes that Jack is relaying to the character uh, that he calls Verge, during which um, he attempts to kind of like justify his crimes. And uh, so... This one, okay, so on the surface, the film itself is really, really, so th that's one thing that uh, that Von Trier has always been really, really huge in, that if those who are not familiar with his body of work, with films like um, like Antichrist and uh, Melancholia, Nymphomaniac, House of Jack Built, uh, but of course movies like Dogville and Dancer in the Dark, Lars Von Trier's uh, entire you know body of work is pretty much informed by his own personal life experiences. And, you, and this one, yes, it's nearly three hours long. I think this movie was like two. I think the director's cut is is, is, is like over three hours. But um, the the difficulty in this one is that going into it, you know that Von Trier's entire experience, that his experience with mental illness, his experience with chronic depression, and the fact that he, I think he was recently diagnosed with Parkinson's. Um, but I think I think he actually knew about that. Um, when he was going into the house that Jack built. That official diagnosis wasn't announced until August of 2022. But I, I'm going to be personal. I'm personally going to point out, given by what I've seen in this particular movie, I think he knew that he knew uh, that he was suffering from that while he was making uh, the house that Jack built. Because the film in and of itself, um, I think in the words of... 
in the words of Von Trier himself, what he that he essentially stated that the movie is about the it was a uh, you know it was kind of a celebration of the idea that life is evil and soulless, and that ultimately that there really is no point. So because it's hard not to see his own depression kind of speaking out in this, and through his film is kind of how he kind of like deals with that shit. You could really sense it in movies like Antichrist and uh, Melancholia when it was really starting to hit him hard in his later years. And he kind of like, this is the only way he can kind of, you know, express himself. But the film in and of itself, you know, it obviously his movies are always a huge uh, spectacle, a huge visual feast. You know, no matter what film you engage in, you're always going to get something that really arrests your eyes. It's really going to pull you away. He has a phenomenal grasp of... He has a phenomenal grasp of how to frame in a scene, how to capture uh, either minimalist or extremely or very very busy. But he always has this really really unique ability to capture small action going in into a very very wide shot. So you can see the sense that the and, and it's the sense. This is going to get a little personal for me. So the way I've always interpreted it is that, and something that would that really really hit me after suffering a personal loss in my life after my father passed away. Personally, I'll say my father passed away. And what what hit me really really hard the very next day, because you know after the after after you get news like that, it, it you know, you're in shock. But it it hit me the very next day that what you can that you get this very overwhelming, you get this very pervasive sense that the world is still spinning, that what is going on is so phenomenally important. It's like literally this life shattering event that's taking place only in only around you. And so it's literally, you're, you become very aware of your microcosm, is what it is. But you're also very keenly aware that the world is spinning on. So it makes you feel, you, you, the, my reaction to that was kind of angry. You know, like the world is spinning on and the world, you know, this kind of like the sense that the world really didn't give a shit. But all this is like drastically important right now to, you know, what's going on. It's like, I can't believe this is happening. This is so, it is so, you know, huge. But the world spins on. And Von Trier has this sense to be able to, to capture that on film of these incredibly intense moments. But he captures them in extreme wide shots where it's like this one little thing that's going on, but in the mean, but everything else is completely placid. So, for instance, when Jack sticks his head out the window and he screams out that nobody's coming to help you despite the fact that, you know... This woman is screaming for her life and like that, but, but nobody cares. Or when he's transporting a body and, you know, you get the sense that the city, like, nobody is paying attention. That is Lars von Trier essentially stating that no matter what's going on, no matter what he puts on screen, no matter what's, you know, what he's putting out there, no matter how involved or how deep or how metaphorical it is, it's, it, in, in his eyes, he thinks it doesn't matter. Now, Obviously, from an art, from an artistic standpoint, I think it does matter. I think every story matters. It's important, but there are many stories out there, so it's hard not to look at it and be kind of nihilistic in that respect, or to get a little nihilistic, especially when the critical reviews are always kind of deeply polarizing. But then, I also think there's a little bit of a, I think a kind of an imp in Lars von Trier that he goes for that polarizing. He says he knows this is going to chew people up when they watch it on screen. So as we get this story of this man who is a serial killer, who is kind of wondering why he's able to make it through this world and not be held accountable for his crimes, able to, to cause so much destruction and damage that he's able to get away with it. Um, 
and then obviously, you know, towards the end, and then when the end comes on, I don't want to spoil the ending because it's in 2018. So we still have a few years of moratorium on this one. But when the ending comes and he goes through that kind of melancholia stylized kind of tree of life, you know, heading towards the end kind of thing, I don't want to give too much away. Um, but yeah, it's like this is ostensibly is his kind of like depressive nihilism coming out on film. The screwed up thing, but it's an absolute trip. If you can stomach what's going on and the things that he's doing and the absolute, complete dissociation that Matt Dillon expresses in this movie and what he does, this guy who is just an absolute walking, you know, monster. I wouldn't, I'm not going to say that he's a killing machine because he still, he doesn't want to get caught. He's still kind of like, you know, he has all the kind of like little antsy, you know, ticks and everything of, you know, the nervous disorders of, of a serial killer. But I'm not gonna say he's like a walking killing machine, not like not like Elijah Wood in Maniac, where he's just like, oh, you know, like. But this guy is, you know, a homicidal maniac. And yeah, that that's you know, Sarkis brings up that that moment when he's looking into when he's looking through the window, and he knows that he can't. I don't want to give it away. I don't want to spoil it. But he's looking through the window, and he knows that he can't access that, no matter how much he wants to access it, and then he hates it because he cannot access it. You know that mo that 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 moment of humanity that's in there. It's wild how he's able to uh, how that's you know Lars von Trier Lars von Trier shedding a tear for knowing what's out there, wishing to be a part of it, unable to do so, and hating it and wanting to spit in its face because he can't. You know that whole kind of thing. It's wild. You know, and he, and it's such a provocative film. Obviously, from visual, it's you know the kills are visually disturbing. It's a particularly brutal film. And uh, an absolute, uh, you know, full of carnage. But there's a poetry there. And then I think that only an individual like Lars von Trier can really encapsulate. The problem that I have with this one, unlike Antichrist, Melancholia, or his earlier stuff, Dancer in the Dark, Dogville with Nicole Kidman. The problem that I have with this one is that I've read, I'm, I'm familiar with the works of Johan of Vasquez. Oh, Johan Vasquez. If you're not familiar with the works of Yonan Vasquez, you you should be. Um, for those who are f are familiar with you know like Cartoon Network and thing, you're probably aware uh, familiar with Invader Zim. Invader Zim was Yonan Vasquez's you know like seminal kind of like animated work and really really funny stuff, kind of satire. There's some black comedy, so a little bit of uh, a little bit of commentary on society. But he has another work called Johnny the Homicidal Maniac which actually explores this exact same topic, which I thought was a little odd because Johnny the Homicidal Maniac came out, I think, decades ago. I'm not, I have to actually have to look that up as to when the hell that came out. Johnny the Homicidal Maniac by Yonan Vasquez, that was in 1997. Yeah, people, I know there's going to be a lot of love for Invader Zim in there. But Johnny the Homicidal Maniac came out in 1997. And that's when I, be, I became familiar with it, probably 97, 98. And it ostensibly follows a serial killer named Johnny who um, is, you know, gets to a point where he's like, he's killing people in order to like collect their blood and paint this wall in his house to keep this ancient evil from breaking out. That's what's going on in his mind. So, you know, the question is, is he crazy? Is it real? Not a really, not, you know, not 100% sure. But when it comes down to it Johnny eventually finds out that there's a reason why he is the way he is and that it's a part of the natural order that the reason he kills consistently and he always gets away with it is because it's what's intended that he is ostensibly 
a function of the universe in order to balance itself out. That there, there can never be too much good, there can never be too much evil, and that he himself is a function of the universe in order to balance out the good. That there must always be this cosmic balance between good and evil. And he finds out that he is one, uh, one tool that evil uses to balance, or the universe uses to balance it out. So he understands that it's like between God and the devil, it's all like it's all completely arbitrary because everything falls within the balance of the cosmos. That the balance must be maintained, and he's a function of that balance, which is why he never gets caught because he must be the way he is. And so, and then it comes, you know, comes out that he was actually you know keeping a de that he was actually protecting the world from a demon down in his basement. And then the demon breaks out, and then he wakes back up, and he feels like, yep, he's still crazy. So you know, it's pretty much what it is, but. I got a lot of vibes of Johnny the Homicidal Maniac from this because a lot of Johnny's stories are told in vignettes and his and he, he's an unreliable narrator because he's insane. And so everything coming from his perspective is going to be insane. And that's why I actually kind of think Lars von Trier kind of took some inspiration from Vasquez from this early from his early work. I think that Yonin Vasquez um, was prolific, and Johnny the Homicidal Maniac, I Am Sick, and of course Invader Zim are pretty much global phenomenons. Um, I, I got a real sense of that comic in this film. That doesn't detract from what Von Trier got, but I think if you want to get a little bit more insight, I think if you go back and you read Johnny the Homicidal Maniac by Yonan Vasquez, I think you'll get a better sense. And of course, it is a horror comic. There's a, there's a lot of black comedy and a lot of horror in it. But I think you'll get a, a kind of an idea of what Von Trier is going for. And then you just kind of insert the fact that everything that Von Trier does is, you know, kind of influenced by his own depressive nihilistic outlook, a cynical outlook on life. Is kind of what I think, I think would really, it kind of puts the pieces together a little bit better for me. As far as trying to understand this. Not to, and not to mention the Dante's Inferno meta text that's going on as he's, you know, like Dante is speaking with Virgil as they move through the Seven Circles. You know, Jack is going on his own journey as well. So it's a deeply metaphoric film, but the metaphors are not as strong as Melancholia and not as strong as Antichrist. Um, and you know, but at least they're there. They were, you know, there's virtually nothing in Nymphomaniac. Nymphomaniac, everything was on its sleeve there. But in this particular one, it's kind of deep. Um, not as deep as his usual stuff, and I think this one really, really grasps, really, really jumps on the visual, the kind of like the visual horror of Jack being this brutal fucking serial killer who is always looking for new ways to eventually contribute to the house that he wants to build, which I also will not spoil for those who haven't seen this. But, um, you know, it's a dark film. It's dark, and it's cynical, and nihilistic, and definitely from the kind of like the deeper, re the, the deeper... Uh, areas of Von Trier's mind but if you can kind of get through that get through and you, you'll see the beauty of Dylan's performance and how he's able to capture that especially in the wake of the new Dahmer film with Evan Peters that just came out which is a magnificent show that just dropped on Netflix if you can catch it Evan Peters is just you know a phenomenal actor and I think I remember first seeing him on American Horror Story and that dude is just like insanely good and so, in the wake of that, you get a sense, like, Matt Dillon really, really captured this character extraordinarily well. I would say up there with Kirsten Dunst's performance in Melancholia, Charlotte Gainsborough's performance in Antichrist, Bjork's performance in Dancer in the Dark, despite the problems with that, Nicole Kidman in Dogville. So, 
Von Trier really knows how to you know really knows how to cast his you know cast his his productions and get across what he's trying to get across. If you can get through the carnage of it, then there is a real poetry to the film, although it is very very bleak and might leave you with kind of like a dark uh, kind of like a cynical look at life, a dark cynical look at life. Aaron Reese says, hmm, serial mass murder is an end result of dehumanization, though. It's a Newton's cradle effect where the killer transfers that horrible treatment to their victims. Absolutely does. It does. It does. I mean, assuming that, you know, when you're looking, looking at it from, uh, from our perspective, from the ground level perspective, it absolutely does. So, but this one was a particularly, a particularly tough one. There's a lot of brutal carnage in it, a lot of uh, really graphic depictions in it, but if you can get through it, it's uh, really, really beautifully done. It's hard to say that a movie that this this rough, that this that this you know, I would say actually, I would say a movie this cruel and this nihilistic could be beautiful. But Von Trier has a way of really framing a film. His scoring, his cinematography, every, and, and he works with the same people that he's worked with since I think Europa, which is like like the third film in his or third or fourth film in his career. So like all the way back. The people that trust him implicitly. And when you have that kind of shorthand, you can deliver phenomenal stuff. And so this is the same people, the same crew of people that worked on Nymphomaniac, that worked on uh, Melancholia, Antichrist. All those people who know Von Trier backwards and forwards, and they know what he wants, and they know how to capture it. So it's a singular experience, and one that you won't soon forget, that will probably sit with you for a while. So I strongly recommend that. But given... That we've spoken so much about Von Trier's effect on film and the you know and you know the the different kind of stories that he tells, I am extremely curious as to what your favorite Von Trier film is. So if you have a favorite Lars Von Trier film, doesn't matter what it is, if it goes back all the way to his uh, to his Europa uh, trilogy, or if you want to talk about uh, the horror films that he does or the more dramatic uh, ones that he's uh, undertaken. Let us know down in the comments below, or of course here in the live chat, or at weekendhorror@gmail.com. What is your favorite Lars von Trier film? All right, uh, Aaron Reese says video violence doesn't desensitize, though. I find it makes me feel more for my fellow man. Ah, it increases the empathy. You can see that. And you're right, Tony Regime. Dahmer series is really good. It's really good and a bit difficult to watch. It's pretty tough. And sarcasm, you're correct. It's horror on a deeper philosophical level. It absolutely is. See, Fred Edge says, uh, "What you doing?" Yeah, oh, show called Dahmer on Netflix while she was hey, giving me a root canal. <laughs> Tony Regime says, only seen Antichrist, and that was a difficult watch. Antichrist was a very difficult watch. A very hard watch. But totally worth it. And that one sat with me for a while. Uh, Melancholia was, I think, a very sublime movie. And beautifully done. I think Kirsten Dunst kicked it out of the fucking park. So did uh, Charlotte Gainsborough. Everybody in that was was firing on all cylinders. She, uh, you know, I believe that uh, Kirsten Dunst won the top prize at Cannes for, um, or at Cannes for, uh, for that film. And I think uh, Melancholia won the Palme d'Or, I'm pretty sure. But uh, that was a phenomenal film. But Antichrist, whoo, that's a tough one if you can get through it. Denova says, I'd have to say that this would be my first one. Well, Lars von Trier's got a, an excellent, Lars von Trier's got an excellent filmography, you know, selection. You know, the films he does are a unique experience, so... Uh, Sir Captain says, Jack uh, is my favorite character, and I am fascinated with serial killer. So, there you go. Absolutely. All right. So, let's go on to our final film. There's a little bit of a story here before we dive into it. So, in the community tab, I remember everybody in the community tab uh, saw that I put up, I always put up the four films, you know, uh, what the next four films that we're going to talk about each week. And I originally I had put up The Hidden. 
and oh no, the hiding. And so unfortunately, that movie apparently is not out there anywhere. It does not exist. So I was like, what the hell? You know, I, I've seen the movie before. I'd seen it years ago because it came out in 2009. And I'd seen it years ago. And unfortunately, um, I didn't have a physical copy. I think I saw it online. And so we were going to talk about it tonight because um, I've seen it before. It's, a, it's kind of a creepy film. And unfortunately, it's nowhere. It's not online anywhere. I think I found it somewhere, but it was a creepy site. It was like one of those like shady websites that probably steal your identification or steal your ID. So I was like, no, I'm not going to do that. So I went to try and find a copy of the movie somewhere. So I couldn't find a copy anywhere. So I contacted the director and I talked to him. And I actually got the director on the phone and Ramon Hernandez. And I spoke with Ramon uh, or Raymond. I spoke with Raymond and it was kind of like, hey... Um, this is what was going to you, what we're doing, this is what's going down. I was wondering if you possibly have a link that we could possibly watch it or, you know, uh, something of that nature. And he was like, unfortunately, they sold the rights to the movie. Have a good night, Aaron Race. Sleep well. And so he told me that, unfortunately, they don't have a copy available that, or he has a copy, but it's somewhere on a hard drive somewhere. Otherwise, they sold the rights to the movie and they don't handle distribution anymore. So technically, he's out of the loop on what's going on with the movie. And so, unfortunately... I could not get a copy in time. So, I changed it. So, it, this movie released the exact same day. And it, you know, we'll just have to save the hiding for another, for another, uh, for, for next year. When we come, we come around to this week. So, unfortunately, I had to change it. So, I changed it to another film. And this is that film. Um, unfortunately, it may have been a bad choice. But, yeah, this is the, this is the rough one for the night. But, here we go. Let's dive into it. Um, because at least there's, there's kind of a, there's a, there's a couple cool things about this one. But anyway, released October 6th, 2009, we have the slasher film Staunton Hill. Let's check out this trailer. Alright, that was Staunton Hill. So, directed by Cameron Romero and starring Kathy Lampkin, Kristen Coppin, David Roundtree, Kiko Ellsworth, Christine Carlo, Paula Rhodes, BJ Hendricks, Charlie Bowden, Cooper Huckabee, and Sherry Weston. So, um, oh, Angel Rivera, the name of the movie that he could not find was The Hiding. So for, you'll see the, the poster of it on the community tab for the channel. Uh, yes, the movie does look cheap because uh, this is, I think, the second film in uh, Cameron uh, Romero's filmography. And yes, that name should be familiar because Cameron Romero is the son of the legendary George A. Romero. Technically, he's George C. Romero, George Cameron Romero, but he goes by Cameron Romero. So uh, this was his second film, um, his second like full feature film. I think he did a short film, and then he did uh, a, one feature before this called uh, the called the Screening, and then he did Staunton Hill. So um, Staunton Hill follows a group of friends who are traveling through Virginia on their way to Washington, Washington D.C. for a rally in 1969, and then they hitchhike to a small community, and then wind up meeting this kind of drifter. Who offers them a ride while on the back roads they break down and they wind up you know trying to travel to the interstate and they wind up crashing for the night and uh in a on a farm in a you know in a barn and it quickly becomes apparent that something is very very off and a terrible harvest is about to begin and as, as eugene would say shit gets real um <laughs> is proof that talent is not genetic so i uh, i can see that was the big thing about about this one. So the the biggest problem on this one is what Eugene and Eugene and all of us talk about so often is planning, 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 and it's a very, very uh, raw, you know, attempt by a. 
I think, by a filmmaker who feels like he has some really, really big shoes to fill. So Cameron, behind the scenes, Cameron is doing everything that he really, really can to to get successful. He's establishing a stable of actors that he can that he can rely on and like to work with him, and he's trying to. I think I think I interpret it as him attempting to divest himself from his father's uh, filmmaking style and from his kind of like you know his dad was big. It's kind of like think of it like Joe Hill and Stephen King, whereas Joe really really wants to be a horror writer, but your dad is Stephen King. What are you gonna do? It's kind of the same boat, whereas Cameron needs to kind of like establish himself outside of his father's shadow. And that is a big shadow. George Romero, Night of the Living Dead, what the fuck? So I don't fault him for that. You know, he he's funding himself. It's independent. His father was an independent filmmaker. He did a couple of studio films. He didn't like dealing with studios. He liked doing independent. So I would say staying true to form, Cameron wants to do independent. He can still do independent. So the problem is, is that... There are missteps that he made here. I think it's because the early success for Romero was in that he was not alone in the planning of his big movie with uh, of Night of the Living Dead. Sir Cabs says, answer, do something else. Ouch! <laughs> Rough. You gotta give him an opportunity, man. I like to see what he's capable of. And of course, this was 2009, so this is like over 10 years ago. But, um, for, for, a, for a very raw early effort, I would say it wasn't terrible. He's got a good eye. He knows how... I think he, he knows what he wants. The difference is that you, if you know what you want, you have to you have, to have the balls to get it. I kept seeing opportunities within the movie that he could have capitalized on something, but then he didn't do it. It's like, you've got to go. I was constantly reminded of Midnight Meat Train. And there was a conversation between uh, Bradley Cooper's character and... Um, uh, Brooke Shields' character is that the photographer is talking to her and she's like, she's looking at his photographer and she's like, you're almost there. Like you're trying to capture, you're trying to capture this, but you keep shying away before you see it. So is it you keep, you keep like, look, you keep like pulling the camera back before you capture it. And that's where Cameron, that's what Cameron failed to do on this is that when you plan for certain things and you have certain character actors that are available to you, like for example, his, um, Two of the actors that he got in this, B.J. Hendricks, is a sizable dude who makes for a pretty imposing, cuts a pretty imposing figure, and Kathy Lampkin, who you probably remember from Texas Chainsaw Massacre. This movie has a ton of vibes of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you know, and Kathy Lampkin just, you know, screams that kind of role. She was the, oh my, 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 or my, oh my, oh my, she was that lady in, in Texas Chainsaw, in the remake, the 03 remake. So, but Kathy Lampkin was a fantastic character actress. Uh, she recently passed away, unfortunately. And uh, but B.J. Hendricks um, is a good character actor. He's got some decent uh, individuals in here that make up a solid stable. The problem is his planning. If you're going to go for a particular thing, especially if you're going to riff off Texas Chainsaw, you've really, really got to to plan for this. And the planning on this was not was practically non-existent which is why this movie drops the ball when it has so much going for it there is so much here that is wasted you have access to this entire farm the barn the silo the farmhouse you have access to all of this you have all this production value all over the place utilize it the camera loves that shit you've got to make use of it make sure the camera sees it all be really really effective if you notice if you go back and you watch the remake of Texas Chainsaw Massacre with Jessica Biel, Eric Balfour, and um, Arlie Ermey. You go back and watch the remake. The one thing that they do extremely well is they allow the camera to feast on all the little 
details, all the little nuances of the of the things around them, how time has worn them down, how decrepit everything is, and how you know how out of how uh, I would say like the modern world is anachronistic to this place that that time is forgotten, this kind of beaten down, you know, discarded old you know, Texas town that nobody knows about, nobody cares about because nobody's there anymore, and how this family is struggling to survive, and that and that's what leads to the horror. But we see all the little grimy, gory, you know, you know, decrepit little details. That's all here. Unfortunately, they don't capture it. They do. He does not. He does not. He's not able to seize on any of those those moments. If you have an actress like Kathy Lampkin who is giving you a solid performance, you get the camera on her. You utilize those angles. You get up on her and get intimate. Allow her rage and you know scary country lady allow that to translate don't sit there in the wide or a 2t and just be static no feel it move with it let the audience really really get invested let them be afraid of her let them be invested in the victim's experience and so that was the problem here is planning 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 is key and i think that's the difference because Romero wasn't alone with Night of Living Dead. He had Russo with him. That was the big point. He had a team of planners all around him. And they were all able to pick up the slack and point out what the other ones had missed. Everyone worked as a team. Bam, you have Night of the Living Dead. Unfortunately, I think Cameron took on a little bit too much himself. He was trying to basically essentially be the one director. Because Romero really didn't start going out on his own until he really had a feel for it. And he knew what he wanted. Such as, you know, like Dawn of the Dead, The Crazies, so on and so forth. So I think this is Cameron just kind of feeling himself out, just trying to get a sense of what was there. But you can see that the talent is there, it's just not confident enough. And yes, Johnny would be screaming, yes, sarcasm, Johnny would be screaming, it's just a piece of shit by now. He absolutely would. And Denova at 20 says, George Romero's choice to push boundaries would define him as legend. It absolutely did. And there was the opportunity to do this. The problem is, is that it's not only in the wasted opportunities of his production, of the production value, but it's also the, pro the problem with storytelling. The disjointed flashback sequences to this weird operation that has no context until like bits and pieces down the road. And then all these little details, the film doesn't really add up. And I think that there were details dropped in the editing room, which may have added a little bit of context. But overall, they wasted a lot, and they missed what they needed. And so, it really, really drops the ball. So as far as, I mean, unless... And then what really sucks is that even if you win in this for the gore and the splatter, there's really only one major kill. There's like, like one major kill, and then one major kind of slice and dice. So you get a girl that's pretty much just hacked up, boom, 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 and then you get another girl that gets scalped and then gets, you know, disemboweled, and that's pretty much it. And then otherwise, it's kind of like, ah, oh, ah, oh, bad kind of choreographed fighting, and it's just not necessary. And you are correct, Travis Brown, George Romero had social commentaries. There is no social commentary here. There's just kids, right? It's essentially, it's a riff off Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which is what, you know, unfortunately, is where it kind of drops the ball. The rule number one is waste not. If you have... You have all this stuff in front of you. Make sure your team is aware of it. Make sure that they're able to communicate what you want to you. And make sure that your script fucking makes sense. Because there's a lot of stuff in this that did not make sense. There's a lot of context. A lot of weird, like, things that would seem to be thrown in to kind of, like, jar an emotional response out of the audience. But were completely, you know, out of left field. And so they feel forced. And so there's nothing moves naturally in the movie. Which is you know, problematic. But all of these are amateurish mistakes. 
they happen to early you know early filmmakers especially one who's trying to fill the shoes of a legendary father which i can see can get in the way you just got to be able to bite the bullet take a risk and do what you're that's what's weird he we want to give him the opportunity to get out of his father's shadow and to do that we have to say you know bite the bullet take a risk do this but that's exactly what his father did so to get out of his father's shadow, he has to do exactly what his dad did, which is which, which seems counterintuitive. But that's the way it works. You got to be willing to take risks. You got to be willing to like go for, go for broke. You got to be willing. Sometimes those safety shots that you're supposed to be going for, sometimes those are what saves the moment. You know, unfortunately, that you know it just wasn't there. You know, maybe they were short on budget. Maybe it was a rush production. Maybe there was stuff you know going on, and you know, they, I don't know. I don't know what was going on behind the scenes. There's not a lot of details about this. There is a documentary uh, that he released called The Making of Staunton Hill. Um, but as far as I can tell, and I haven't sat through and watched the whole thing, as far as I can tell, it seems like it was a pretty, you know, by the you know by the numbers production, which unfortunately is kind of sad, especially when you're doing a slasher with the Texas Chainsaw Massacre overtones. So Genova28 says, Texas Chainsaw Massacre minus the Chainsaw and Leatherface Natural Talent. You got it. Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah, so you're saying it's worse than Aaron Reese's back problems. I would agree. It's worse than Aaron Reese's back problems. Tony Regime says that's still better than the California Axe Massacre. Only three kills and one was a chicken. <laughs> um, you know, uh, if you want to go something cheap like this, I think the, um, what was it? The, the Bunny Massacre? I think the Bunny Massacre, if you want to go for really cheap kind of gore and effects... That would be more along, more up, you know. Like, I think it was the, it was the, it was the bunny massacre. I'm not 100 percent sure. It's been, it's been forever since I've seen that. Um, the bunny man massacre, bunny man massacre. That's it. So bunny man massacre or and bunny man two. Um, those ones are pretty damn extreme movies. And but those ones just said, fuck it, we don't need story. Fuck it, we don't need this. All we need is just hardcore, you know, slasher action. And Bunny Man 2 was pretty was pretty impressive. So was the Bunny Man Massacre. Um, if you ever get a chance to check those ones out. But yeah, unfortunately, a very early effort by Cameron Romero and uh, a big kind of misstep. A, a, a huge missed opportunity. Because I honestly think he had, he had the chance to capitalize on something here as far as an early film. And maybe say something. But, you know, it didn't really work out. Um, which unfortunately happens sometimes. Um, I think it was just written by David Roundtree. David Roundtree was in was in the movie. I think he was cast in the movie, but uh, not the strongest one. You know, not not the strongest script. I think this this needed a lot more planning in order to get off the ground, and maybe that's why we haven't heard so much from Cameron Romero. He hasn't done a whole lot. He's done a lot of kind of commercial work and like small stuff, but as far as films go, it may be tough uh, to kind of get out of this hole because sometimes that first big misstep. That can delay you. That can really trip up your career, which is kind of a damn shame. But, you know, high hopes. He's Cameron Romero. He's George Romero's son. I don't expect him to live up to uh, George Romero's name. I expect him to forge his own path and establish himself as a horror director. You know, in maybe in the same vein as his dad did, maybe something completely different. I have no idea. But I hope, if he wants to pursue this and keep going, that he learns from his mistakes and he keeps progressing. You know, because Joe Hill is a phenomenal writer. Joe Hill is fantastic, and I think he's done quite well in stepping out of his father's shadow. You know, the you know Stephen King, who recently had a birthday, by the way. All right, so 
given that, you know, looking at Staunton Hill and looking at all of the, um, looking at all the missed, <laughs> the bunny massacre, do you mean basic instinct? Actually, I think you're, I think you're thinking of, um, uh, Fatal Attraction, Angel Rivera. Oh, I think I got you. Yeah, I think you're thinking Fatal Attraction. Uh, the bunny man, uh, the bunny man massacre. Is what it sounds like what happened when I got my first twenty-two. <laughs> Jesus, Fred Edges, goddamn. Um, so looking at Stan Hill and being an early effort from Cameron Romero and kind of like the the missed opportunities throughout the film, the things that as a as kind of a veteran director you got to look at it and be like, oh, why didn't you capitalize on that? Oh, why didn't you grab that? Why didn't you see that? No, why didn't you missed opportunities all over the place? But then again, sometimes missed opportunities are kind of what make a movie. So I'm very curious. And they're often what kills a movie too. But I want to ask the I want to ask y'all the audience of all the horror films that you've seen, of all the horror movies that you've sat through, that the ones I've made that I that we have made you sit through here at Week in Horror. What is the worst missed opportunity in a horror film that you can remember? Of all the horror films you've watched and you saw something go down, you said that was oh missed opportunity. You could have done that. You could have pulled it. It would have been amazing. What is the worst missed opportunity you've ever seen in a horror film? Where you've been like, you knew what they should have done and they just failed to capitalize. Or maybe they didn't even see it. Let us know in the live chat or in the comments below. Or of course, at weekendhorror at gmail.com. Alright. I think that it is time for trivia. I think it's trivia time. It absolutely is trivia time. Let's pull that out. Fantastic. Alright. For this week... I am giving away a Week in Horror Icon shirt. So the one with all the the horror icons on it. Um, I'm, we're giving away a Week in Horror Icon shirt in the size of your choice. And so all you have to do is be the first one to answer this trivia question correctly. Let me pull up the live chat so I can ensure that I know who got in first. There we go. And make sure I got the live chat. Definitely, definitely sarcasm. Yes, it is an awesome shirt. It's one of the earliest ones that I designed for the show. It's kind of like a promo shirt, and I decided to put it up there so we, you know, people could get a copy, get one if they want to. Um, so yeah, here we go. So live chat. All right. I look forward to, to what you come up with, sarcasm. Okay. So trivia question for tonight. Get those Google fingers ready. So here we have it. The trivia question for tonight for a weekend horror icons shirt. What other horror film is Thanatomorphose often compared to in regards to themes and graphic nature? One more time, that's what other horror film is Thanatomorphose often compared to in regards to themes and graphic nature? First one with the correct answer in the live chat gets the gets the icon shirt. And don't worry, extra J. You can save that for the uh, for the comments if you if when you come up with one. I'd love to hear what y'all what y'all think of that one. Travis Brown got it. Bam. Travis Brown, first one in there. Contracted. You are correct, Travis Brown. That and the movies came out fairly close to one another. Wow, Travis Brown, you haven't gotten on the board for a minute. I'm good to see you uh, pick up a win. I think he was waiting for a prize he hasn't won yet. So Travis Brown picked himself up a weekend horror icon shirt. Congratulations, Travis Brown. I think that's one of the few you don't have, isn't it? Let me know. So, but congratulations, Travis Brown. We will get that printed out and shipped to you ASAP. Tony Regime said The Fly. Oh, and gosh, the heck, I said Duke. <laughs> so, God, oh, I missed that. But I have to go back and watch that one again. 
Uh, extra J says, I couldn't even spell Nata before. Thanatomorphose. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, congratulations again to Travis Brown. All right. And that is going to bring another episode of Week in Horror to a close. Thank you all so much for listening, and we truly hope you enjoyed the show. Join us next week when we look back at the rare Disney horror, The Watcher in the Woods. The American Zombie Retread, Quarantine, the original Full Moon Masterpiece, Puppet Master, and the Lovecraftian mind of the legendary director Stuart Gordon in Dagon. So, And be sure to cast your vote for me in the first Face of Horror contest. The cut to round four is tomorrow, so be sure to get those votes in. I'm going to put that link down there in the live chat. <laughs> Extra J, Fanatomorphome. Fanatomorphome. <laughs> Oh, oh, a massive shout out to all of our amazing patrons who continue to help us make Weekend Horror the incredible success it has become. Thank you all so very, very much for all that you do. Joshua Olson does all of our amazing artwork here for the show, and his designs are incredible. Hit his store up at badsamurai.store. That's badsamurai.store. For more horror fun, be sure to follow us on all of the socials for daily horror posts, and be sure to combat the evil algorithm by dropping a comment, liking, subscribing, and smashing the living fuck out of that bell. And lastly, if you love what we do here and would like to or are unable to support our production, you can by joining and enjoying the tasty benefits of one of our many Patreon tiers. As low as $1 a month, you can help to support the show, but those go up to 10 We have lots of goodies that we give away. Be sure to check that out. But if Patreon is not your preferred stocking method, you can always support us directly through our PayPal. Links to all of this, including our Discord community, where you can hang out directly with us and watch movies and do all kinds of stuff, are in the description below. Oh, and thank you so much, Sarcasm. Great show, JL, proving one man can make a difference. Love to the chat, and good night, all good night, Sarcasm. And remember, the goal here at Week in Horror is global horror domination, and we can't do it without you, our amazing audience. So pretty please, with the severed, infested head of Clint Howard on top, Go and share the absolute fuck out of our little show. Thank you all, each and every one of you, for being the greatest audience, the greatest, uh, I can't talk tonight, the greatest audience that a podcast could possibly have. I am JL. Thank you all so much for joining me. We will see you all next week. And as always, stay scared.